0: Hey, folks, welcome to the Dark Horse podcast live stream number 60. Apologize for the late start. Our tech has gone totally 2020 on us. (laughs) Um, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas.
1: Happy Boxing Day.
0: Happy Boxing Day. I know that one's right. Uh, Will you tell me I, I am old enough that I should absolutely know this, having grown up around many Christians? Do I say merry christmas now that christmas is over or do I not? I have no idea. You have no idea. You don't know. All right, well definitely have a merry boxing day. Since and when
1: are you all about protocol
0: anyway? I I it's uh, I'm a late bloomer in this regard at least. Mm-hmm. So, yes, I don't know. I don't know what that's about. I think I'm uh I'm feeling a certain amount of trepidation. I think a lot of us have been assuming that 2021 is simply going to be vastly better than 2020 just by simple matter of uh, reversion to the mean. It, It is very likely to be an improved year, but there's no telling. I mean, it could be that whatever it is that put 2020 in motion the way it did is going to continue into 2021.
1: Gee, I wonder whether or not that could be the case. Whatever put 2020 into motion the way it did, say, <laughs> the, the public reveal of a virus on literally the last day of 2019 could perhaps follow us into 2020, right. not right. obeying temporal boundaries that are, in fact, entirely human constructs, even while the astronomical realities of things like solstices are not human constructs.
0: Well, I was, I was thinking that the larger context in which COVID is embedded, mm-hmm. right, might be, might be different. Um, obviously, COVID is uh, very unlikely to be cured by the beginning of the year, and so I don't know. At least, at least we have no presidential election scheduled yet oh in God. 2021. No. So it is likely to be better on those grounds alone. Yep. yep. But uh, I don't know. I mean, we none of us really have a good sense of exactly why everything seemed to come to a head in 2020, okay. although. I have a hypothesis.
1: I honestly have no idea what we're talking about. Um, could, could I just stop for a second? Sure. Zach, is there any way that we can um, get a view on the camera or is that just not going to happen? I have no idea why it's not working. With, All right. It's just a little disconcerting to be talking into blackness. Okay.
0: All right. I'm going to save my hypothesis no, until. No. Go for it. Please go for it. Nope. I'm holding it back. Why?
1: What just happened? <laughs>
0: Um let us move on to the material of the podcast as we had it scheduled. So what was the I
1: I'm, I'm eager to hear your hypothesis?
0: I I'm going to hold it okay, till a more okay. appropriate place okay. in in the broadcast. Fair enough. Um so we had a I'm <laughs> trying to remember
1: <laughs> this so far yes, this the... is a, a very rocky start. Welcome to episode sixty, everyone. Here we are. We're going to talk a little bit about those weird interstitial spaces between moments that are important and that mark transitions. Hey, there's a screen. Thank Excellent. you, Zach. Um, and uh, then, obviously, we're ta- going to talk a little bit about locker rooms and of course. and uh, as climate is change and the brain cases of shrews and maybe a little bit about traffic. So, you know, all very coherent narrative as per. 2020.
0: Right. Right. We'll just, we'll re kick it off. Welcome to the Dark Horse Podcast <laughs> live stream number 60. Here we are. We are staring down the, the barrel of 2021 and raring to go.
1: Oh, we are raring.
0: We are. We are in, what is raring? I'm not sure. Yeah. It's a, it's do you, not the do opposite you, of well done, I guess. Do
1: you, <laughs> do you ever hear that word absent being followed by to go? Are you ever no. raring? All right.
0: On you, the couch? New Year's resolution. <laughs> I'm inspired. (laughs) My first New Year's resolution is going to be at some point during 2021 at a moment when it's not wasted. I'm going to use the phrase raring to stop.
1: (laughs) I like it. Very good. Okay. Well, I'm excited uh, for the moment when you are raring to stop. Raring to stop. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. All right. So, um, right. So we are, yesterday was Christmas. um, Merry
0: Christmas, if that's still appropriate.
1: Merry Christmas to you! Thank you, and to all of you. And uh, Hanukkah had long since ended. The solstice was uh, four days prior. Four days prior, and uh, and of course, the new year is is coming right up. And and for me, growing up um, in a house that celebrated Christmas, um, albeit without very much, really any uh, religious associations with it, even though my father um, had faith. Um, this week between Christmas and New Year's always had a particularly um, strange, somewhat wistful, somewhat sad, but also hopeful feel to it. Um, you know, it's, uh, of course, when you're a child, um, if you are normally in school, you're not in school right now. I mean, our children haven't seen the inside of a classroom since March, so um, this feels very much not like not nearly as unusual as it normally would. Um, but so the fact that that you would normally not be in school and that your parents, if they both work, normally have at least several days off um, contributes to that. But it's also, I think, about just the fact that there are these two major holidays, regardless of whether or not you actually celebrate Christmas in the U.S., it is so ubiquitous a part of the culture that it is, it is all around you everywhere. And... Um, And by by this moment, Hanukkah has almost always completely ended. I I think there may be some years when it continues on past um, into very late December. And the new year, of course, is both a human construct in terms of us defining it as uh, whatever it is five days from now, um, but also reflects an astronomical reality that is absolutely um, salient and important, whether re- and would have been important to you know anyone trying to make a living on the planet um, in any way um, until until very very recently. It's only the very strange modern condition of being human in which maybe it doesn't really matter to you that you've gone a full cycle around the sun, right? Um, but so there's also this like just like this this interstitialness of it. It's it feels it feels liminal. Uh, and I actually want to return i don't want to spend a ton of time uh today on this question of of liminality, but when carnival happens, when that time you know within actually i don't know when it is this year, but in in a few months um I want to come back to this question of what carnival is as someone who has now taken students into Latin American carnival in a couple of places and and talk about what this this moment of sort of shedding identity and playing with identity is it's almost a return to childhood. And this moment in time feels a little bit a little bit like that. Like it's got this potential of, okay, as much as that year was whatever that year was, let's see if we can phoenix this up. Like if we can, you know, if, if that thing is going to burn to the ground, what will rise from the ashes? Can we make it something better, unexpected, emergent, that maybe no one, including ourselves, has imagined before?
0: Yeah, it is... Uh... It is a weird kind of a stasis. And, you know, there has traditionally been a period in many calendars because you and I have talked before, I think uh, maybe even we talked last week about the fact of the calendar being very hard to calibrate Mm -hmm. because it's not an integer number of days, which can be dealt with in a number of ways. You can either physically instantiate the calendar where the exact presence of the sun on the horizon at some location is used uh as a marker that marker doesn't move
1: the most famous one that people will be familiar with being stonehenge stonehenge
0: but Mm -hmm. there are many many of these uh earth clocks and in fact there's one i didn't know we were going to be talking about this or i would have looked it up but there's one um somewhere in uh northern north america there's one before the population had um, figured out how to calibrate their clock they had tried to do it i think based on moon the moon phase, which is also not an integer number with respect to the year, the number of uh, complete moon cycles. Mm
2: -hmm. And
0: um, so anyway, there's uh, paleontological evidence of them having dug up their clock and rebuilt it again and again and again, (laughs) trying to get it right. Um, But anyway, yes. So the interstitial space here after the solstice and before um, our new year, the new year obviously being arbitrary You know, as you were speaking, it occurred to me that it would not be arbitrary if it had been on the actual solstice, and I do wonder if, in fact, obviously many their you know calendars differ um, as to when they place the new year. But this one doesn't seem to be so accidental, and it does sort of suggest um, a sort of near miss. Yeah, does uh, doesn't the start (laughs) of the year? You know, if 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 it had been uh, on the twentieth, well, the twenty-first,
1: but. I actually feel like there's value in it. So, you know, you just said between the solstice and the new year, I was thinking of you know, really the week uh, between Christmas and New Year's. But, it, you know, in terms of astronomical something, uh, the solstice and whatever moment you've decided to call the new year um, still being reflective of, okay, one year ago, we were in the same place relative around the sun, and it's a way of keeping track of your own life. Having that delay of, in the case of solstice to new year, of, you know, 10 days-ish, a week and a half... Um, actually potentially has value, right? Like it, ge- it it allows you time to reflect and it's not just, okay, we're looking forward to this thing and boom, it happened, it's over. And now, you know, move forward like this. It actually allows for a slowdown. and You know, most people do not feel like we need more of a slowdown in 2020. Right. Like there's been, there's been plenty of that. Thank you very much. On the other hand, um, as much as we have been much more at home still, you know, not going out, not experiencing things that we would have been experiencing, all of us, as a result of COVID and the resultant um, political and cultural response to it, uh, there is, it has been difficult to get any distance enough to reflect. And maybe maybe we can use, not us necessarily right now, but maybe all of us can use these next few days to think on what actually uh, we 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 personally did that was appropriate. It may have, you know, the, the, the virus and its downstream effects may have revealed things about our own selves um, that are useful to us. Um, both in terms of wow, I actually have that capability, or huh, that came out, and I, I didn't. I wish it hadn't, and now I can see it, and maybe now I can act so that it is minimized in the future.
0: Yeah, so there's there's two things. There's sort of a you know personal growth, you know, monitoring from a, a fixed period before, and then there's also a question of you know how different things are. Obviously, this year, you know, basically, it is a year since COVID broke into uh, the world framing, um, but at some point, for example, we will face a year in which the price of fossil fuels has changed so much that getting coal in your stocking is a good thing.
1: Mm, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Even if you're a child, do you think?
0: Well, sure. I mean, for one thing, you know, if it's worth enough, you can trade it up for a PlayStation or whatever it is that you really want. I think
1: our children <laughs> would actually prefer the oranges.
0: The oranges. Oh, sure. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Um, that's one of the reasons that we get them oranges. <laughs>
1: that's right. For your whole crate.
0: Yep. Yeah. Absolutely.
1: Um, yeah. So, I mean, there's, there, there's a lot to say here about the value of tradition and about, especially at a moment when it's very hard to to have many of our normal traditions to consider what their value actually is to not overthrowing them just because it's what you did as a kid and you think you've outgrown them or because you can't see what the value is um you know chesterton's fence in the form of chesterton's traditions this sort of thing um and that's not to say that all traditions have value or need to be um need to be carried forward but think before you get rid of them and maybe in this you know, unfortunate sort of whittled down moment. Um, consider whether or not there are, there are more that you might create and establish. And they might be annual. They might be, um, you know, when when they're sort of daily, we tend to call them habits rather than tradition. You know, there's some there's some temporal scale long enough uh, by which we tend to call it a tradition. Um, but even you know, seasonal. Um, you know, this people who celebrate, for instance, the astronomical realities of the solstices and the equinoxes um, have have those as rituals or traditions, and it helps remind them of sort of yes, where they are in the seasons, but also to say, ah, last time I did this, I was here. I was in this headspace. I was with these people. I felt this way." Um, it's also, you know, it's one of the reasons uh, that people journal. It's one of the reasons that people, you know, leave leave clues to what they used to think for their later selves to find, because it actually can calibrate you and your world.
0: Perfect. All right. Here's what I think. Here's my hypothesis.
1: This, this is the one we, you
0: were going? Absolutely. Awesome. Okay. okay. Um, now, mind you, if this is true, it's important and you need to pay attention. 2020 is what happens if you eat the silica gel. That's the hypothesis. So I don't know who ate the silica gel. So you you
1: don't think it was collectively? You don't think all of us secretly ate the silica gel?
0: One person eats the silica gel. 2020 is the kind of year you get. And so basically we all need to get on. We've got a collective action problem here to beat the band, right? We need everybody to just resist the urge to eat those little packets of silica gel. Just... Throw them out with the box to your feet. You think it was an
1: anti-authoritarian who just could not take it anymore? It's like, do not eat, really? Do not eat, really? I'm just, I am going to eat that. Yeah, it, it, exactly. Yeah, it, yeah,
0: exactly. It was mm-hmm. a rebel mm-hmm. who uh, was just... Um, you know, to hell with it. Didn't, didn't care the risk they were putting the rest of us to. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Had no idea.
0: Yeah, well, damn them. <laughs> I hope it dried them right out.
1: So um, we did, before we talk about things uh, totally distinct from this, uh, we actually did something this week... Um, that used to be uh in your life a lot when you were growing up and was in my life a little bit and we had before this week never done it as a family i had i hadn't done this in decades um our older son, our producer. Uh, had been had been taken out uh, for like an hour once, and you had gone out with our younger son twice last year. Two days. Yep, two days. Um, and then COVID shut the whole thing down. So what is it, and what do you want to say about it? Yeah.
0: So the thing is uh, skiing, which is its own weird kind of phenomenon. But um, alpine anyway, skiing. Alpine skiing. Yeah, downhill skiing, as they used to call it, um, which is uh, you know it's a very fun slightly artificial but very much out in the fresh air and uh, in a beautiful place kind of an activity and anyway it's been something that has been hard for us um to do i mean it's expensive it's often far away and it just so happens portland has good skiing within a couple of hours and so anyway we just finally bit the bullet and did it. Mm -hmm. and Found ourselves
1: on a beautiful volcano one lovely Wednesday morning.
0: Yes, on Mount Hood. Now, Toby and I had sort of innovated the process, you know, basically it's a couple hours away. So you drive there and you drive home and working from your car is a whole different way of dealing with it. So anyway, Toby and I figured that out last year. And then after two days, um, the ski resort actually made us a deal for a little bit extra if we just paid less than one extra lift ticket they would give us a season pass for the rest of the season and so we did it and then covid ended the <laughs> ski season abruptly and we've been resenting it ever since so anyway this is our our <laughs> chance to get back on the slopes but um i, I do want to show you a couple of pieces of video and then i want to make a connection which i'm not a hundred percent certain of but i'm, I'm pretty sure
1: awesome.
0: so zach do you want to show uh I don't know. Why don't we start with Toby?
1: So this is going to be Toby on his third day of
0: skiing. This is his third day of skiing ever.
1: And this, and this, is, this it, is actually for those of you who know Mount Hood, this is Timberline.
0: We're at. Yeah, this is Timberline. Right up at Timberline. Well, and, that's the uh, name of it. the resort. Um, and this is you know near the end of the day. So actually Toby's getting a little tired here. But man, look at him. Three days of skiing. Right? Stunning. And he's fourteen. Yeah, he's 14 and he's taking to it like a fish in the water it's right. a weird expression because
1: the fish who live in water presumably always have
0: yes exactly like mm-hmm. a mud skipper to mud maybe would be excellent better mm-hmm. it's less intuitive. I think it's going to catch on oh I know it is mm-hmm. um all yeah. right uh, Zach do you want to show the other video of the other son skiing on his first oh, day of skiing Here is Zach this is he this is day 1.2 gram.
1: So um, why do you say I've it's 1.2? Like, what, what is 1.2? Because he had like an hour less in January of yes. this of 2020. Yeah.
0: But anyway, check this out. This is a guy with. I mean, this is not quite right the end of the day, so this is less than one full day of skiing. And look at him go! Amazing, no? So I could just be a proud father mm-hmm. looking at my two <laughs> fantastically coordinated. Suns zipping down the mountain and feeling a kind of elation and it might mean nothing to anybody else, but it Means something to me. Well, sure. It means something to you <laughs> yeah. Um, But here's the the hypothesis about this Both of these boys have Take have picked up skiing at a rate that I am not familiar with oh. this does not look like you know a few days in or in Zach's case one day yeah.
1: And let me say before you continue that, because you will not say this, that you are an extraordinary skier. Like you, you, you just are, you skied so much as a child and then you, know, you went, and you also went out as a teenager with a good friend of yours who was also an excellent skier, and you pushed and pushed and pushed each other. Um, so you, I mean, you really, you know, you know skiing, and yeah, you, you are, I, I you are both know. fantastically comfortable, even after you know decades not being on the slopes. Um, but you, you know what you're looking at, you know what you're talking about.
0: So just to to clarify this, I was um, after many years of skiing an aggressive all mountain skier uh, when I was skiing with my you know, teenage male friends. We (laughs) pushed limits and skied places that we shouldn't have and all of those things. Um, And then uh, you and I got together. You weren't, uh, you hadn't done as much skiing. Nor was I a teenage boy. No, you you were not a teenage boy, though you could give them a run for their money. But uh, anyway, you and I perfected the art of goofing off on skis um which is <laughs> you
1: taught me how to ski backwards ski we spent a lot of time of what's it called in the slack country in the trees and the powder right? yeah so that it's called slack country it is now i don't yeah, think it was okay. then okay.
0: but anyway. um but anyway uh so anyway I, I very much uh like goofing off on skis i think i like it quite a bit more than i like the the daredevil stuff which mm-hmm. you know gets old very quickly. Um, but anyway, yeah, I do, I do know what it looks like to learn to ski and skiing has changed a lot. There have been major innovations in the equipment. The skis like look unrecognizable. The loop on the top of the <laughs> boot tongue that allows you to pull the tongue up so that you're not in quite so much pain. I mean, that is a <laughs> marvelous invention. How did we ski before that? I don't know. I remember it
1: being painful. It
0: was painful. Um, But anyway, back to the point. The point is, why are these boys learning this sport so quickly? And I think the answer, and the boys concur, uh, they've obviously only learned the once. But the answer has to do, they they are both very coordinated and athletic. But the other thing is, they both have learned and are much better than me, actually, on electric unicycle, which is a very odd little device um, very interesting, and at some point I'm going to do a podcast on it um, with a friend who is a kind of an important person in that uh, little world of electric unicyclists. But anyway, this is a device. It's a single wheel with two pedals on either side, and it's motorized. And basically, there's a little computer in it that causes it to balance you as you tilt for. Oops! As you <laughs> tilt forward, it zips ahead to get back under you, and as you tilt backwards, it would zip backwards to get under you, and you control the left-right balance, and you steer by, you know, doing what you would do. And the thing is, it's not exactly like skiing. In fact, there's one way in which it's a mind-bending distinction from skiing, which is in skiing, if you put weight on a ski, it becomes your downhill ski. That's how you turn, even before you ever think of it that way. On electric unicycle, I believe it is actually the reverse, which is very strange, I think, because it is powered rather than gravity pulling you downhill. But anyway, it's a confusing little puzzle. But, But the thing is, other than that, the similarities are many. Right, the way you control the thing and getting mm-hmm. used to controlling the thing as you're,
1: and the sense of precariousness, and you know, you need you need to have some faith in your body and in the in the tools you're using to not fail. If you're constantly worried, <clears throat> excuse me, if you're constantly worried that something is going to fail on you, you can't, you just will never get going. Particularly,
0: yeah, right. and um, there's something about the control of momentum, the trusting, you know. As you're skiing down the hill, you know, you're not – you are using the sort of fluidness of it to to get down – I don't even know how to explain it in words properly. But the basic point that I want to make is that the it is weird to find two things that are so dissimilar for which one is such a useful developmental experience for the other that, in fact, I don't know how – fast relative to somebody who had just never been on either device. Um, this progress is, but... Well,
1: what, um, so as as you know, I don't, I have not yet uh, mastered the electric unicycle. Um, I haven't, I haven't really tried yet. Um, but but we 're also a biking family we mm-hmm. all we all bike and we all have um, really solid skills on both pavement and trail on on bikes and yet you don't raise biking as a, uh, an interesting and relevant precursor to to having an advantage in learning how to ski and is that it, do you just not think of it, or do you think that there's really a difference in which case you know my observation that you have to really trust the the tools that you're using um, isn't necessarily apropos because the same thing would be true of biking.
0: Yeah, I mean, it may be. I'm sure it has relevance in one regard. There's something about um, the experience of moving at that rate um, and it being safe, which I'm sure just, uh, you know, inures you to the fear you might otherwise have on skis for the first time. But I don't, I think the way that you control a bike is sufficiently different, Um, you know. And also, you know, maybe what it is, there's something precarious about all um, sports in which you have, you are perched over a very low center of gravity. Mm -hmm. But the way you control yourself on skis requires uh, you to deal with, um, with that in the same way that a skateboard would or skates or any of those things, and the electric unicycle is similar in this regard um- mm-hmm. in a way that a bike isn't you know a bike you can kind of barrel over large obstacles if you have you know tires appropriate to it and all mm-hmm. so i think I think it's distinct- it's distinct but i'm sure that I'm sure there's some relevance yeah yeah, all right all right
1: anything else to say about skiing um I mean no doubt,
0: but right now. Um yeah there should be. I don't know. It's uh it, it's it's interesting to return to it after so many decades really of no contact with it.
1: Yeah. no, um, literally decades. I'm I'm sure I was it was, you know, early mid 20s last time I was on skis. Yeah. And, and it uh, was it was just wonderful. And you know, obviously being outside it was a perfect day. You know, it was cold. It was cold, but it was sunny and there was little wind and this and the Snow quality was quite remarkable, yeah, Yeah, for for groomed slopes.
0: It was really nice. And uh, Mount Hood, and in fact, Timberline, where we were skiing, is especially um, nice. It's kind of small, you know. Mm -hmm. I grew up skiing at Mammoth, as you did, and Mammoth is huge, yeah. Um, and you know, this is I think six total lifts, but it's interesting. It's you know, the lodge itself where you start is right at the tree line, and you've got this, you know, glorious, uh, immense peak above. And anyway, it's a very nice, uh, a nice little place to ski.
1: Yeah, indeed. All right. Well, um, you wanted to talk. We've got... We've got shrews. We've got locker rooms. We've got a rare bit of good news regarding maybe. anthropogenic climate change. Maybe you want to you want to do them. Yeah. <clears throat> maybe maybe a rare bit of good news regarding anthropogenic climate change. Yep. Uh, All right, so let's, let's see, see. Do that. to
0: get us uh, to get us there. Um, let us talk about. What I think is the biggest scary part of the whole global climate change picture, which has to do with uh, frozen methane clathrates in the Arctic. So basically, methane gets trapped in uh, various forms. One of them is frozen methane under the permafrost on land and under the sea floor. And there is such an immense amount of this stuff trapped. That it dwarfs any contribution that humans would make um, to global warming. And the problem is that the positive... So just,
1: just because it's not a word that I am familiar with except from hearing you talk about it. Methane clathrates is yep. the word you're using. Um, <clears throat> and uh, people may also have heard things like gas hydrate, hydrate. or even um, fire ice yeah. in some contexts. Well, so it's all the same thing. These if I would thought synonyms. about
0: it, I would have uh, had a video, you can actually see um, in certain places in the Arctic, um, methane on fire emerging from Mm -hmm. uh, sediments and things. Uh, So anyway, you can look that up um, and you can find it. But yeah, it's basically these uh, structures, these methane structures that hold, uh, they hold methane stable in a frozen form. It's, um, a, yeah,
1: it's, a, it's a crystalline structure. Yeah, structure it involves, that's holding
0: involves yeah. water, and anyway, uh, mm-hmm. th- they're also chemically interesting. I don't know if you scroll up, maybe we can find I mean, this. It. Is
1: I, I, this is just Wikipedia? Yeah, but,
0: knows, but but they should have a picture of one chemically somewhere. Mm, maybe, no, not, maybe not. Not so much. Okay. Oh, in any case, there. I mean, that's just a. Oh a, yeah, there you go. It's, it's really too tiny. small. But uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, there you go. It's um,
1: meaningless to almost everyone.
0: So I believe that's going to be the methane there in the center. Um, but anyway, this is a very potent methane is a very potent greenhouse gas, and there's a huge amount of it tied up in these fro- frozen clathrates in the Arctic, and some of it's under permafrost, some of it's under the sea floor. But the danger is that it's in a, it's stable because it's frozen, and as the Earth warms, it is going to be released at some rate. And what we have seen there's a Particular, it's a Russian uh, academic outfit that does yeah. a lot of studying of methane releases, and they found these in
1: Siberia mostly. Yeah, in, yeah. Uh,
0: in the uh, the ocean, um, it's a it's a oh. it's a marine census. Oh, maybe different. So they found that. these huge plumes of methane, and the problem is we don't have good baseline data. Like, do you expect huge plumes of methane? If so, are they more common? Are they bigger? We don't know, I, probably we know more than last time I checked in on this, but we, because we don't have 100 years of data on these methane plumes, because in general, they're not of consequence, mm-hmm. um, we it's hard to say how alarmed to be about the fact that there's suddenly huge amounts of methane bubbling up in the Arctic. But the danger is that we could get to a place where positive feedback would take climate change completely out of our control. Because to the extent that it gets warmer than historically it has been, it will release... Faster. Yeah. Warmer faster. Mm -hmm. It will release a bunch of methane that was frozen that would otherwise have stayed frozen. That methane, because it's a very potent greenhouse gas, will cause the following year to be that much warmer. Mm -hmm. Um, That following year will then release more methane and so what you'll get is eventually a release of a huge fraction of that stuff and at the point that that happens there's basically nothing we can do right this is no longer a question of us controlling climate change it's a question of us adapting to whatever is coming Mm -hmm. at whatever magnitude um and so uh that uh dragon's breath hypothesis is or the That's what cl- clathrate gun hypothesis, the idea that it would go off like a gun, mm. um, is a very frightening prospect. And those of us who are most concerned about this um, happening are have our eye on this. And my mm. contention has been the day on which climate change is no longer something that we could control, even in principle, it will not make the news. We will not know it has happened. We will not know that threshold has been crossed. It will just happen, and then mm-hmm. we will live downstream of it. But it Here's, might not
1: even be deducible in retrospect, right? Like you know, five, ten, twenty years later, right. pinpoint it a little bit. But um.
0: I think we will have a sense of it now. We're doing enough monitoring, mm-hmm. but it's the the point is it's a it's a threshold we will cross, but it's not you know it's not a threshold that can be named specifically. I believe in the mm-hmm. present, There's, it's too too complex. So what emerged, and actually, I owe uh, my good friend Kevin um, a shout out for pointing me towards this, but Zach, could you put up the, uh, actually, before you put up the article, could you put up the pictures of the craters, the Yamal craters? You You can just start with any, any of it. Okay. So this is the floor of one of these craters in the Yamal peninsula of Siberia. Um, could you go to the next one? Uh, here's some people rappelling down in so you get a sense for how big these craters are. Go to the next one. Okay, so here you can see from above. And uh, those of you, I know I talked about this on the podcast with Katie Herzog. Um, these craters are, I believe, very ominous. And I think that the images of them ought to be on everybody's mind. I don't see these images nearly often enough given what they suggest. Um, the These craters were discovered.
1: I mean, I guess we saw a person in the last one. So we're talking a couple hundred feet across? a couple hundred feet across.
0: These were discovered, ironically enough, by fossil fuel petroleum workers who were traveling over the Yamal Peninsula by helicopter. And they Mm. saw these holes in the ground. Initially, we did not know the explanation for them. The Dragon's Breath hypothesis that this was somehow an explosive release of methane Um, was tested and turns out to be the best hypothesis, probably true, for what created them.
1: And the idea is this is such an unpopulated region that there are no people around to report, oh yeah, we heard that and we went and looked and that was never there before. Right. There there are no eyewitnesses to these craters being formed.
0: Correct. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, I will say that the Yamal Peninsula is pockmarked by geological processes. So Mm How rare this actually is, I don't know, but it is certainly rare within geological experience. In fact, it's so rare that this particular formation does not have a name, right? So we have names for other things, and in fact, there were uh, hypotheses that this was a pingo, pingo being a geological formation that arises when water freezes and ejects uh, dirt out of a hole, Um, but it doesn't look like this. It's not explosive, right? Mm -hmm. It's just like... It's a cracking mass of dirt, and it would be there rather than kaboom. yeah, there
1: would be dirt remaining.
0: Right. So so this is not a pingo. It turns out it's probably due to the explosive release of methane, and that's very frightening because what it tells you is, God damn it, there's there's stuff going on on the methane release from the Arctic Channel— that is profound in terms of its scale and new enough that we don't have a geological name for it, Mm -hmm. right? As studied as geology is, this is new. So that's scary and we ought to be very worried about it. So in light of that having, yeah, why not? Uh, That's still the guy repelling. Is there a fourth picture? picture. Okay. Um, So now could you show the article Uh, So, my friend Kevin forwarded me this article, which I cannot read at that scale. Um, Yeah. And so, anyway, this um, suggests something which may be the rare piece of good news that we get on the climate change front. What this uh, article describes is the discovery initially about tides and their effect on methane release and basically the idea was the higher the So the, the tide... moon
1: here in the t- in the headline title is just about the moon controlling the tides. Yes. Okay.
0: That basically the moon's effect on the height of the water column above the flo- frozen clathrates mm-hmm. controls how much release. The more water is standing on top, the less likely the methane is to be released, which stands to reason certainly.
1: So there's, it's not a binary, are you covered with water or are you not? It's actually the depth of the water by which you are covered is predictive. This is a continuous variable. The depth of the water by which you are covered um, is actually, uh, the, the greater the depth, the more protective against uh, clathrate release.
0: Right, is which the, is, is what is observed,
1: yes. or it's a hypothesis. No, no,
0: this has now been tested. Okay, now, of course, always could sure. be reversed, but yes, the idea is: the more water that's sitting on top of these uh, these methane hydrates, the less likely they are to be released. The smaller the plumes that we get, mm-hmm. and the reason that that is good news is because it suggests a negative feedback. Mm -hmm. on methane release, which is to say, if you take the scenario that we described up top where methane release or something else causes the temperature to warm, that warming temperature then causes more methane to be released, which causes it to warm further. That's a positive feedback. There's no controlling that. It will be controlled by some other process. The water on top, however, is something sea levels, you all know, are slated to rise if the temperature goes up. Why? because the ice that currently holds a lot of that water will flow off the land and into the sea, causing elevation sea level. That's a bad thing, especially if you live on the coast. It's a bad thing for lots of reasons. But it may have this positive outgrowth, which is it will increase the depth of the water on top of the methane that is the greatest danger in this whole global climate change story. So and this therefore— the, the, more, the, the warmer it gets, the more water will be on top of the methane clathrates, the harder it will be uh, for it to be liberated. Mm. So it may be uh, right. a buffer rather than an accelerant of climate change
1: Wow that so that that would be terrific news. Uh, these clathrates, uh, which are, it sounds like, littered across the what peninsula? The Yamal. The Yamal Peninsula in Siberia. Um, this is this is tidelands or it's dry land but low-lying such that even with relatively small amounts of sea level rise, they would potentially be submerged?
0: Um, as always, when we do this off the cuff, yeah. uh, there's the danger of my saying something sure. dumb. But it is uh, Arctic- Permafrost. Mm-hmm. Um, so these are it's dry land, um, low lying, and uh, basically it's tundra. Tundra is, I think, the but right it's term.
1: Arctic permafrost, which could therefore become sort of marshy if things warm up. Right, maybe depending on where the water table is and what the elevation is, and all yeah. And
0: I, I have no yeah. doubt actually that some of it is marshy some of the time, but there's mm-hmm. a perma there's a permafrost layer. Um, that is uh buffered from the sun and uh, below which resides an awful lot of methane, apparently, oh, yeah. the test I should say the test in those craters involved descending into those craters to detect the levels of methane which were sky high mm. um, so anyway, yes, a rare piece of good news one and you know I must say in in the better discussions of climate change that i uh haven't done it recently, but I participated in years ago, there was always this sort of hope that buried somewhere Mm -hmm. in the complex system that uh, controls the Earth's temperature was a hidden feedback that we had missed that could work in the right direction. And while this probably isn't sufficient, in fact, you know, it is the warming that It is the rise of sea level (laughs) that brings the protection, so that's not a good thing. But nonetheless, it is a feedback that at least I had never heard of before um, that would work in our favor rather than against us.
1: Well, just fabulous. Hope it's true. Yep. Um, Hope we don't need to rely on it.
0: Yeah. It would, Mm -hmm. well, be great for us to get our ducks in a row one way or the other. Um, My sense, having thought a lot about all that we might do, is that um, mitigating the release of greenhouse gases, it's too little, too late. Mm -hmm. Um, And that really our only plug and play hope for reversing what we know is coming is fusion power, fusion power. If we can, if we can get there, actually would allow us to pull carbon out of the atmosphere Right? You could pull, actively pull it out. Yeah, you could pull mm-hmm. it out of the atmosphere the way trees do, for example, mm-hmm. but you could do it as a result of a process in which you could basically use huge amounts of energy liberated from uh, between uh, these uh, subatomic particles, um, and that you could use that. You could make building materials out of CO2 (laughs) in the atmosphere and use it for something useful and lower the temperature. (laughs) Well, yeah. The problem is we're not investing nearly enough in fusion power uh, to get there in time. I don't know why we're not. I cannot imagine why we are not investing more in it. Um, We are investing, you know, small not tens of billions of dollars, which sounds like a lot until you realize that we are investing hundreds of billions of dollars you know, globally in things like text messages. Um, so, anyway, yes, we are being very foolish not to pursue fusion. Yeah, um, hopefully we'll get there.
1: Um, let's talk briefly about shrews. Of course, yes. I mean,
0: it's that point in the podcast where the mind shifts to the, the subject of shrews as, and as other insectivores
1: and other insectivores. Okay, so let's let's just start there with a brief phylogenetic note from uh, your sponsors, Deep History um so shrews are insectivores which um sounds like it's a description of their diet because we have these this language of like carnivore omnivore insectivore uh folivore herbivore um but they're we are using that term in its phylogenetic meaning and so and I actually actually um, I made a comment maybe last week or, or two weeks ago about the carnivores with whom we live. And um, that is not a standard use of the term. That is actually, that was a student of ours. Brendan. Brendan, um, who in talking about the difference between ecologically eating meat being carnivorous and phylogenetically being part of the lineage from which um, all extant carnivores, uh, being part of the lineage who had a most recent common ancestor so from which all extant carnivores members of this clade belong those are called the carnivora but not all the carnivora not all the carnivora eat meat there are for instance fruit eating kinkajous some of my favorites Um, and there are plenty of things that eat meat that aren't in the carnivora right so there are the carnivorans which include basically the filiform ones which are like cats and hyenas and weasels and such and the um, caniform ones which include dogs and bears and seals and lots of other stuff uh, yep, go so, on. So,
0: for people who caught your explanation there, mm-hmm. yep. this will then make sense of the fact that um, snakes are tetrapods by virtue of the fact that they are in the tetrapod lineage without being quadrupeds. Mm-hmm. Right. So, even though
1: tetra and I don't know which is Greek and which is Latin, but tetrapod and quadruped mean exactly the same thing. Right. But um, four, we, four-footed.
0: In this family, we segregate these two things so that we can talk about snakes being tetrapods without tripping over it. Mm-hmm. Um, but quadruped refers to things that actually have four legs. Exactly.
1: So snakes are tetrapods who do not have four legs because they are part of the lineage Tetrapoda. Um, Kinkajus are carnivorans without ever eating meat because they are part of the lineage uh, that includes um, all of the carnivorans. And there are insectivores, insectivora. Um, and actually, gosh, there's some new Latin name for that clade, I think. I think,
0: uh, I think that clade turns out not to be a clade. It's not a clade. paraphyletic.
1: Oh, it's not. So we're talking about the – oh, boy. Yeah, so – I don't even remember then who who belongs where. Um, But but what shrews? Rest
0: assured, we'll figure it out and get back to you on that.
1: What shrews are not is rodents. They are not rodents. Okay, so, um, you know, half of all mammals are rodents, more than 2,000 species of rodents on on the planet, another quarter of all the mammals are bats, and that leaves every other single thing you can think of that's a mammal in that remaining quarter. And the insectivores, which includes um, shrews, are included in that quarter as well. So shrews um, have little tiny heads under the best of conditions, (laughs) Um, and it turns out, so there's this this Polish zoologist, August Donnell, this this is old news in zoology, and I'm just learning about this this week. And given everything else that's going on, I'm not sure exactly why I was so taken by this, um, but I just kind of can't think, stop thinking about it. August Donnell, this Polish zoologist, um, made the observation back in 1949, he's long since dead, um, that the not just the brains, but the brain cases, the actual skulls of shrews shrink in winter and regrow in the spring. Are you looking for a shrew skull? Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm sure we have have one one somewhere.
0: I do have one, but I'm not sure where it is.
1: Um, Yeah. We're always misplacing our shrew skulls. we? It's terrible. (laughs) So often. Yeah. Um, And so that, that it became known as Danelle's phenomenon. The fact that shrews um, shrink their brain cases and also apparently their livers and their kidneys. And that's, Amazing. But there's something about the brain case itself, the literal, the skull shrinking by 15 to 20% or so in the winter and then regrowing in the spring. That's so remarkable. But Donnell only observed this. He didn't, he didn't do what's called a match pair's experiment. He was just looking sort of population wide and noticing that, um, I, I think it was museum specimens that died in the winter had smaller skulls than those that were um, alive in the spring, that died in the spring and summer. And so maybe this is just about um, selection acting differently on animals that had smaller skulls in the winter and on and on the su- and in the summer. But in 2017, um, so again, not totally new. Um, we find this published in Current Biology, profound reversible seasonal changes of individual skull size in a mammal. And these guys did the work. They they tracked individuals, much to the dismay of the shrews, no doubt. Um, oh, where, and
0: to their significant others, who no doubt thought this was kind of cool the first time they heard it. But then dinner time after dinner time, they kept... <laughs> I was
1: certain you were talking about the pair bonded shrews and their significant
0: others. I can't speak to that. I mean, I'm sure they have opinions. I I don't think
1: these shrews are pair-bonded.
0: Yeah, I don't think so either.
1: No, but the authors here might well be, and I'm sure they were sick of hearing. Is this – are you – are you saying to me that you wish I would stop talking about shrews at this no, point? No, no, no. On the
0: contrary. I, I'm imagining that in general, the significant others of these shrew studying biologists were not themselves similarly interested. In our case, no, I'm, I'm all for this discussion. Yeah, it's
1: really, it's our children who are downstream of our enthusiasm, but we are equally enthusiastic about um, exactly. the, the skulls of shrews shrinking. And um, Zach, yeah, give me my screen back. Um, so, so they actually demonstrate it um, for sure. So this, uh, this Donnell's phenomenon um, turns out to be true. And apparently there's some evidence from weasels too, which is fascinating because weasels, as per our conversation, you know, five minutes ago are actually carnivorous. So they're um, not very closely related to shrews. Um, and I guess the, the reason that I am so surprised by this, yeah, go for
0: it. Here, I got it. Um, well, yep. I don't got it, but I got mm-hmm. a piece of it. If I'm remembering my mammology correctly, both shrews and weasels do not hibernate.
1: This is absolutely true. So this, this has been observed. Uh the shrews are apparently eating some crazy multiple of their own body weight every, every day to, yeah. to maintain themselves. And in winter it's harder to come by food and brains are very expensive to feed. And if you just shrink your brain and not your brain case, and it's going to rattle around in there and not be, not be very effective come spring. So you got to shrink the whole thing. Um, so, you know, in terms of what the adaptive advantage might be i you know, i i can see that although it also feels to me like everyone else is also hungry in winter and if you've now got less brain by which to evade predators uh this might be challenging for you on the other other hand shrews uh emit uh some odors that make them quite unpalatable to at least uh, mammalian predators i don't know about hawks and such i don't you know birds birds have such different sensory
0: most birds don't it's traditionally thought as you know most birds don't have uh, a very sophisticated sense of smell there are, there are exceptions right, right. like uh, vultures but
1: right and i don't know about the um the you know like the excipiters, the hawks and such um falcons yep. um but the the reason i find this shocking honestly is because we have in organismal biology a pretty old and i actually didn't go and look in the history to see how old our understanding of the terms determinate and indeterminate growth are, but this, what these terms mean is, if you have determinate growth, at the point, at some point, as you reach adulthood, you hit a size, and you do your bot your skeleton does not grow anymore. You can obviously grow out. You can always you, know, you can always get fatter, um, but your your um, your long bones don't continue to extend. For instance, right, and you know we got sort of three types of skeletal stuff, but I think even the, um, the cranial skeleton really doesn't, you know, just doesn't your, your appendicular skeleton and your cranial skeleton, your, um, and your axial skeleton are all there. And this is, this has been understood to be what mammals have and what birds have determinate growth. There is maybe not a predetermined size because it's going to be affected by things like diet and environment. uh, but at the point you hit it and some other developmental things happen, you don't keep growing. Compare that to organisms with indeterminate growth, which include most, um, you know, fishy fish, crocodiles, squamates like lizards and snakes, uh, which actually do keep growing um, continuously um, throughout their lives. Now, that rate of growth um, slows dramatically, and it almost looks asymptotic. Like, it almost looks like they're approaching some, some size at which... They will stop, but but they don't, it seems like they just, they keep growing and that's called inter- indeterminate growth. So if we were seeing this like brain case shrinking in winter and then regrowing again in spring in an organism with indeterminate growth, like a crocodile, that might be scarier than a shrew, but I wouldn't be so shocked by it. Like yeah. w- whatever is going on with regard to skeletal growth and development in like crocodilians, is clearly different, it's more labile, it's more flexible over the lifetime of the organism than it has been understood to be in mammals. And this thing that we're seeing in shrews suggests at least some mammals have this ability to not just turn back on change in in bone, but actually reverse, actually go smaller, Yeah, which I, I just didn't even know this was possible.
0: Uh, well, I'm frankly, blown away by it. My guess would be that there's a whole landscape of this stuff that we just don't know yet because it's not that obvious. Hundred percent. Um yes. And there's you know stuff in the neighborhood, right? Like uh, antlers. You know, antlers are bone. True. True. It's yep. no, it That doesn't get resorbed. It gets dropped and mm-hmm. then regrown. But there's some something there. So just a couple it feels things. So. Yeah, it's not it's not resorbed, but
1: um, but you do get you know, something about male development prompts growth of new bone with a, with an ability to then drop them at the end of the season. Yep. Yep.
0: Okay. Um, So one thing I want to point out though, is that this actually is reflective of something that you and I have long argued in many contexts, which is that the, any hypothesis about brain size that does not include the understanding that brain is the last thing you want to be big without a reason, mm-hmm. right? That any size that you find in in the brain is there because it served the ancestors uh, whose uh, existence caused it. Very clumsily said, but mm-hmm. the uh, the fact of the brain having grown larger over time cannot be explained by any. Drift like cause because. But
1: but gee, Brett, I thought we only used 10% of our brains. (laughs) Right,
0: exactly. That kind of uh, nonsensical um, claim just Mm -hmm. doesn't stand up to scrutiny because A, the brain is so freaking expensive to run, most expensive organ in the body. The size of the brain case makes it vulnerable. Right, So the bigger it is, the more likely you are to crack it and die.
1: Yeah, and, um, and it wildly increases mortality for women in childbirth.
0: Wildly increases mortality for uh, women in childbirth. And the, and
1: the hip widening decreases stability of walking. Right, and forces the baby to yeah. be
0: born early, which causes mm-hmm. a period of helplessness, which is much harder for the parents to deal with. Um, the loss of heat. Uh, is proportional to the size of the brain so there, and heat is a the huge expense it's mm-hmm. something like 85% of calories for endothermic that is warm-blooded creatures like ourselves so the point is the number of things that push in the direction of geez if you can get away with a smaller brain then do it yeah is huge so to be any a
1: pinheaded true if you can <laughs>
0: be a... <laughs> yes be a pinheaded true if you can now there's advice for you mm-hmm. we'll, we'll all take that one into 2021 <laughs> um but anyway, yeah. so this does suggest that there's intense enough pressure on these things that even within an individual, a seasonal opportunity to shrink the brain, however that works, is a good thing. Yep. And that selection has found it, uh, it sounds like, maybe twice. In, uh, maybe twice, yeah, um, which,
1: which then, of course, raises the question of like, really, just twice? Are we sure? Right. And it right. probably <laughs> won't be.
0: But then here's the question. I want to know, you know, the thing about the brain is it's not like more is good right mm-hmm. more is good by virtue of how the neurons are connected to each other so exactly what way are these creatures economizing and then rebuilding what sort of structure is it that they can rebuild a brain that's of any use at all yeah right? what,
1: are, what are they what are they losing access
0: to right
1: like what can't they well, do in the winter that they can do in the summer i had a guess and about that. yeah i actually okay so so you, do i yeah, it's a little bit poorly formed, but I got it in my head, yeah.
0: So I uh, had two things. One mm-hmm. is maybe they're not losing the neurons. Maybe they're basically collapsing the structures intact. So there's a weird uh, result in um, development where the cells of the baby are present long before they are fully infused with resource, right? Mm-hmm. And so the point is the resource, you don't want to put the resource, pregnancy is dangerous and you don't want to put the resource at risk before you have to because that's, you know, a penny saved is a penny earned, uh, metabolically (laughs) speaking. Um, And so uh, is it possible that the brain is being shrunken in size that basically, you know, the... the,
1: Wait, but they're still walking
0: around. Well, right. Obviously, there are lots of parts of it that won't be, but are there... Sets of circuits. As
1: opposed to fully lost. Right. right? As
0: opposed to lost and then regained, which is mighty hard to imagine how that could be productive. Um,
1: It it is. Um, On the other hand, uh, we know that, for instance, migrating songbirds literally lose their testes and regrow a pair. Mm. Upon landing in their northern migrating, their their northern breeding grounds. Yeah. Um, because carrying around balls is too is too heavy to fly with for these birds. And so, you know, the thing that I was wondering about shrews is is whatever, you know, if it's lost rather than shrunk down, or either way really. Yeah. Um, it's partially going to be about sort of whatever the shrew equivalent of mating and dating is, you know, that they don't need in the winter.
0: Exactly. That was going to be my hypothesis also was that there was a whole, uh, you know, complexity surrounding reproduction that you know you're not going to need. But again, I wouldn't imagine it would be uh, lost. I would imagine it would be put into cold storage as it were. Um, (laughs) Yeah. But in (laughs) passing, you just blew right by regrow a pair.
1: Oh, no. Yes. I know.
0: Regrow a pair, now that is mm-hmm. an insult, perfect for an era in which so many people are losing their ability to say normal things in the face of a crowd of people shouting at them. And I, I think I'm going to start telling people to regrow a pair.
1: Oh, I, I have actually, I've have, I have begun doing that occasionally.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's a good one. Mm-hmm. It's a good one. I like it. Yeah. Um, yeah. But- it
1: has broader applicability than if you were a, a bird landing in his northern breeding grounds. I think there are a lot of contexts right. in which regrow a pair is In uh, that case, you're just being advice. supportive. <laughs> That's regrow right. Regrow a pair,
0: right? Yeah, yeah. In fact, yeah. If, I mean, if mm-hmm. the right bird looked at you and said regrow a pair, you know, that'd be a good sign. Absolutely.
1: But, uh, yeah. Get on with it, buddy. Yeah. Exactly.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Get on with it. Exactly. All right. Well, are we there with the uh, the shrews and? The, I, uh, I think we're there with the shrews. <laughs> yeah, I
1: think we've done shrews. We're at an hour already? Good Lord. My goodness. Um, how did that happen even? Um, well, we probably do want to talk about the uh, the transgender kerfuffle in the Evergreen locker room.
0: Of all, all right? places.
1: Mm-hmm. Of all, all places. places.
0: Yeah. Um, so how do we want to do this? Do we want to show them the uh, cairo video
1: well let's just say set yeah set up very briefly and then we'll show you a two minute ish video from local news uh, up in olympia washington our former home for 15 years more than that um and then we'll talk about it so i don't know you want to set it up
0: well sure all right so let's be you know as always we need to make an effort to be completely fair about this let's just mm-hmm. describe what apparently happened and okay. this will be largely uh, in the, the video also, but Absolutely. apparently a trans woman, that is someone born male, um, and you will hear them stumble over that very claim in the news report, but
1: not the person, not the trans person. No, one of the parents.
0: Uh, nope, well, actually she does too. but anyway, yes, the news report says that this person was born a man. nobody's born a man. Nobody. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Born male. Um, yeah, born male would be mm-hmm. the traditional way of saying that. In- and not
1: assigned male either. Born male.
0: Born male. Mm-hmm. Right. So anyway. This, Sorry, we're uh, not doing a very good job. No, we're doing being... a terrible job. This uh, trans woman, born male, transitioned to female as an adult, was apparently... In the locker rooms at the evergreen State College, now evergreen is a college, but those locker rooms were being rented out or somehow local high schools
1: and um, ele- and swim teams for the elementary school kids
0: oh i didn't know the elementary school as young as I missed six that mm-hmm. um, so these girls from these schools encountered this um, trans woman who has not surgically non-op transitioned. not
1: pre-op either non-op, non-op. No, in, no intention to have surgical change
0: so uh, male genitalia in a female locker room where in a
1: middle-aged man where there's teenage girls and younger
0: right and some of the girls apparently uh reported this to their parents and the parents um requested that something be done to get uh, the situation remedied. And anyway, um, the remedy, oh, yes, there's maybe we should just show them the the video at this point. Um, Zach, do you have it?
2: The person at the center of this controversy says she is being discriminated against, forced to leave a facility she has a legal right to use.
0: I looked at her and said, excuse me?
1: And she said, you have to leave. I'll be right back.
2: Colleen Francis says she was using the sauna and women's locker room inside the recreation center at Evergreen State College two Wednesdays ago. The same facilities used by two female high school swim teams from Olympia who practice in this pool. A woman told Francis to leave.
0: She wouldn't identify herself. She,
1: all she said was that there were a couple of girls that came upstairs to the pool and said that there's a man in the sauna.
2: But Francis, who acknowledges she was born a man, says she has lived as a woman since 2009. Still, someone called campus police, and local parents got wind of it. They're uncomfortable with him being in there, her being in there, um, and they um, are a bit shocked by it. Christy Holterman's daughter was one of the swimmers. Holterman complained to Evergreen. College officials tell us they have been working with the Olympia School District which leases space at the pool. But state law requires equal access to state facilities regardless of sexual orientation. So local school officials tell us they came up with a temporary solution.
0: There's a, a smaller private locker
2: room next to the, the main locker room there at the pool and they've been using that. But Francis says she believes the students need an education. This is not 1959 Alabama.
0: We don't call the police for drinking from the wrong water fountain. All right, so there you have it. Um, So this obviously raises interesting questions and um, creates a pretty good uh, illustration of why um, inventing pronouns and forcing some kind of new usage is um, not a solution to the problem. Did you notice this? That the uh, spokesman for evergreen there says that the college has attempted to come up with a remedy and that it has found some other locker rooms that they now use and it is unclear in the report whether they refers to the girls of these swim teams or whether they refers to the single individual in question now in fact In writing, they remedied this in a clumsy way, but in the written piece, they clarify it in parentheses, and they say that, in fact, it is the swim teams that are using these separate...
1: Smaller, less good facilities because of this one person who, in a separate report, is revealed served in the military for 20 years and is now wearing a low estrogen patch... And lipstick, apparently. And that that is, I, I'm sorry, this makes me so angry. Well, you know. So you know, we've talked about trans a lot in a lot of places. I encourage people to look at my letter wiki exchange with Abigail Schreier. Um, if you are concerned that I'm not being respectful, we have trans friends say over and over that trans is real and actually one of the I think the first question we're going to get to in our Q&A this, uh, this next hour is some people who are really concerned that you know what, what could we possibly be talking about when we say that but um, create a system that's gameable and it's going to get gamed and how dare any system put girls and young women at risk because a dude wearing lipstick who has sort of girly affectations wants to be in the sauna with his bits hanging out. It's not okay.
0: Yeah, I it's I not okay. I agree it's not okay. I'm not, you know, I'm not sure uh her name was revealed. I think there's no harm <clears throat> in using it. Yeah. Um Colleen here, you know. I'm not sure that the onus is on her to um figure out how to navigate this. But I do think that the institution has an obligation to protect those girls, first and foremost.
1: Well, uh, as as was the case in 2017 when what happened at Evergreen happened there, um, it is not primarily the individuals who are spouting garbage's fault. It is the responsibility of the so-called adults to walk in and say, you're spouting garbage and you will stop now, and we are going to take whatever power you have wrested illegitimately away from you. This person, Colleen, is it, has the... Audacity to say this isn't Alabama 1959, I think is the random year that she comes up with rather than I think 57 is probably what she, 55, you don't even remember. Um, no, it's not. And frankly, uh, a guy with an estrogen patch and lipstick is not a black person using a drinking fountain. A guy with an estrogen patch and lipstick naked in a sauna with a bunch of girls it's a different situation and everyone knew that until yesterday and this is something we talked about this is you know Douglas Murray's formulation like it's it's one of these things that we all knew until yesterday and how is it that we are all pretending that the emperor has clothes emperor has no clothes here
0: um so i agree with you i still think the onus is on the institution and while mm-hmm. i think it is very clear Um, for many reasons, some of them biological, that the analogy uh, to the drinking fountains is completely out of place.
1: It's despicable.
0: Well, is it despicable?
1: It's despicable that this person would claim that they were fighting a civil rights fight when what they're actually fighting for is the right to be naked in front of young
0: young women. She shouldn't be in that locker room. You and I agree on that. The question is, this is on institutions as a reflection of the rest of us to get Mm -hmm. this right and to prioritize those who actually are in need of protection. And so in this case, what you have is somebody born male, right? Now, why is it that, um, women have their own locker rooms? Why is it that they have their own, you know, divisions in sports and, you know, why prisons, right? Mm -hmm. We, that exists because males for reasons it's not our fault, but the fact is uh, evolutionary history gave us a power advantage, and that power advantage in the case of uh, sexuality also creates a special hazard for women. Not only are men in a position to overpower women on average, but the uh, harm of having done so Um, is that much greater. Now, this is partially historical, but just the simple fact of women carrying pregnancies means that the, the jeopardy here is all the greater. So do women deserve protections from men? Yes, they do, right? For reasons that aren't any of our fault. It just happens to be the situation. There's an asymmetry in the biology, and that asymmetry justifies a protection. That protection does not reverse because you decide that you're female or because you feel female. And therefore, the institution absolutely has to provide protections to these girls rather than what they have apparently done here, which I can't say I'm all that surprised <laughs> given how frequently this institution um, flies in the face of logic mm-hmm. on such things, but has prioritized the rights of this individual trans woman, that is to say, born male, transition to female. They have prioritized her rights over the rights of numerous girls who are both disadvantaged by having been born female and therefore likely being smaller, are disadvantaged by virtue of their age, right? And so they are actually vulnerable. And so what I want to be careful of is when I saw that interview with Colleen here, um, I thought the fact that She acknowledged that she was born male, didn't seem sensitive about it, was willing to talk about the fact that, you know, one of these girls had apparently complained about a man in the locker room. She talked about it in an adult fashion. So I was, you know, I'm sympathetic that there's actually potentially something to be solved here, but there's no question who needs to be protected in the situation from whom, right? I don't know that Colleen is a danger. I assume she's not. But the fact that we segregate women because somewhere in amongst men are men who are dangerous means that those protections should should remain no matter what
1: yeah i i'm going to end up ranting if if i if i say much more about this wow so you know a, a 16 year old girl who walks into a women's sauna naked and uh sees someone with a cock and balls and reports that there's a man in the locker room, the person in possession of said cock and balls not being offended that someone saw them and identified them as male, that's a really low bar. That is a really low bar for being impressed with this person's <laughs> response. Well, like, I just come I, on. Look,
0: I do th- I do think we um because and I agree with your uh your assessment that we have you know, this is a dangerous thing to say, but I believe it is a literal thing and that you're quite right about it, that you have the phenomenon of trans, whatever it may be, and then you have a bunch of people utilizing the um, opportunity to opt into two oppressed classes. That is to say, trans people have uh, a difficult road based on uh, perceptions of them, and females are uh, are, are able to avail themselves of protections for the mm-hmm. reasons we've already described, and so the ability to opt into two protected categories is irresistible for some men, and they will do it. They're unscrupulous men, and yeah. they will do it. But I just don't don't know. I never want to assume that that's the explanation. Mm-hmm. It is something that can be revealed in some cases.
1: I guess just one more thing, and I did allude to this earlier, but um, this case. Sp- makes my blood pressure spike in part because the interview which we showed you guys um has this person doing little sort of girly things with their hair and their necklace and like this and This feels like, and I'm not the first, this is not the first time I've said this, I'm not the first to say it, and it will be said many, many times again, but this feels like the most regressive and misogynistic view of what woman is, that I can, I mean, maybe not the most misogynistic and regressive view of what woman is, but it's incredibly. Incredibly retro. It's incredibly woman hating. Actually, it like reduces, that's not that is not doing this doesn't make me a girl, right? It, it reduces like, no, femaleness. that's not what it is. It
0: reduces it to an affectation. Yeah, yeah.
1: To an, exactly, and there are there are plenty of us women out here who don't do that, and there are plenty of women who do. And in neither case does the doing or not doing things like playing with our hair make us a woman. No, and if like if 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 you're a dude who wants to play with your hair and act that way, okay, but there is no way in which that makes you female. No, no.
0: All right, but I still think the the object of our ire mm-hmm. really ought to be these um, ridiculous phony progressives who actually imagine that in some biological sense yeah. yep. that you um become female by virtue of having uh declared uh declared a pronoun or two mm-hmm. and i i think we ought to refer to them as she jerk liberals <laughs> so oh boy there's that okay she jerk liberals she jerk liberals yeah um
1: i think you know, there's other places we could go, but I think that's a good place to stop for today. Actually, on
0: that bad, huh?
1: she no no that good. She jerk liberals. All right. Okay.
0: Well, yeah, uh, I guess we have then reached abruptly the end of this <laughs> yes. 60th live stream on the Dark Horse podcast.
1: Yes. Um, yes. No, yes. I think I, I think we have. Um, tomorrow actually is our private Q and A, so we are gonna we'll be back in 15 minutes for those watching with our our Q&A here today. But tomorrow is our private Q&A where we do um, a two-hour private Q&A for um, questions that have already been asked by patrons um, on my Patreon. And if you join um, before tomorrow at 11 a.m. Pacific um, at the $5 level or more, you can join uh, in that conversation. It's small enough that we have the chat visible to us and we can actually look at it unlike any of these live streams. Um, You... Uh, have your hundred dollar Patreon conversation uh, for a handful of people next Saturday before this live stream you're looking at me like holy hell didn't no, I just no. have one no
0: no I'm, you said for yeah it's more than a handful but it's a, a nice uh, a nice group of but, people uh,
1: two hands and two feet fulls
0: something like that yeah <laughs> <laughs> something like that
1: fingers and toes
0: yeah I presume they have fingers and toes I don't know
1: yeah um so you can you can find access to that at Brett's Patreon. Um, you know, there's there's merch listed there, but but uh, all the we're gonna bring it out some new stuff at some point soon. So yep. rather than talk much about that, if you have logistical questions, you can email darkhorse.moderator at gmail.com. Um, you can access the Discord server at either of our Patreons, and we have a Clips channel that uh, is putting out clips of what we talk about in these longer forms uh nearly daily at this point i think
0: Uh, yeah lots of stuff
1: lots of stuff and uh so please join us in 15 minutes and if you are listening only we will be back in the new year
0: awesome all right merry christmas if it's appropriate happy new year and uh we'll see you shortly one way or the other be well